Hello, and welcome to the 23rd episode of Breaching Extinction. This week, I had the privilege of interviewing Howard Garrett, um, co-founder and director of Orca Network. He got his sociology degree from Colorado College in 1980 and began working for the Center for Whale Research in 1981 um, before going on to start the Orca Network in 2001. Hope you guys enjoy this. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing well also. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me. Are you in St. Petersburg? Um, I went to school in St. Petersburg. I live in Monterey now. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. Great. Awesome. Good place. Yeah, I love it. Lots of whales here, so it's it's a good place, good weather. Um, and you're on Whigby Island, is that correct? Right. Okay, nice. Do you know Whigby or these islands? Um, I lived on Orcas Island over the summer, um, okay. but I hadn't, I didn't get a chance to go over to Whigby, but I definitely want to, you know, go up and explore some more of the islands. Right. Lots to explore. For sure. Um, well, I'm not sure if you've heard of my podcast or not, but basically, um, I'm just kind of trying to spread the story of the Southern residents and help people to connect. Um, I found that, you know, sometimes information can be really inaccessible just because it costs money to get into the environmental science field or it's hard for people to read articles. So this is kind of my way of trying to make it a little bit easier for everybody to understand what's going on. Um, so I'm just getting as many perspectives as possible. Um, Great idea. Thank you. But do you want to start out and um, introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about your background. Okay. Um I uh, came into the world of the whales in December 1980 to uh, help with the field research at uh, what was then Orca Survey that has become the Center for Whale Research on San Juan Island. And uh, I got immediately immersed. I had just gotten my degree in uh, what seems to be a totally unrelated field, which was sociology in Colorado. But... Uh, as I learned more, and this was a very exciting time in the early 80s because the results of the very first field studies uh, were starting to come in after half a dozen years. Mike Big and Ken Balcom and their photo ID method had started to show the different communities, the transient and the resident types, and that they were you know, completely different in their behavior and their diets and everything else. Uh, and their vocalizations, as John Ford had shown, but uh, they were otherwise the same species. They were the same animal. So that pointed to cultural differences, basically, that they had traditions, learned behaviors uh, that they learned from their elders, from their mothers, mainly. And that really excited me because that's sociology. Mm -hmm. It's just never been applied to any non-human before. But, you know, I was seeing that these are animals that are behaving in the same way that, that humans who are bound by their cultures and traditions and their upbringing and their cultural knowledge uh, behave. And so this was very, I was hooked immediately. Mm -hmm. I... I I figured there, this is a barely developing, unfolding story uh, that the world just doesn't know about. And, of course, all of the researchers 
to this day are biologists. Mm-hmm. And biologists, even though you know they have learned by virtue of uh, Rendell and Whitehead and their paper in 2001 called Culture in Whales and Dolphins, mm-hmm. they've learned that, yes, they do live by these learned traditions, but it's still really hard to get the implications of that, of what that really means. Um, and, you know, it's it's just uh, borne out over all these years. It's been very clear that, that this is the case worldwide with orcas, all these different types and communities, that their, their diets, their call systems, and their genetics, basically their mating patterns, are determined by what they learn from their elders. And that, to me, is extremely exciting still to this day i'm still hooked yes no doubt i think that's why so many people are drawn to them because there's like that connection but it's so fascinating and i'm still not sure if if this is something that doesn't occur in other animals or if we just don't know because we haven't studied them but i'm curious to see you know the impact that this sort of research has on studying other animals and kind of our way of understanding them um so can you tell us a little bit about like Orca Network and kind of the work that you're doing now? Sure. Um, our start uh, was a nonprofit organization that I started in 1995, and it was uh, to bring Lolita home, mm-hmm. Toki, uh, in Miami at the Seaquarium, uh, who is a southern resident orca, a member of Elk Pod. Mm-hmm. Captured at a young age, we don't know, but about three or four. Um, and this was, the timing was after uh, the Keiko experience, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, because in 1993, just before the movie came out, Free Willy, mm-hmm. uh, the producers of the movie, who live on Orcas Island, uh, had asked Ken and others, but knowing that uh, Ken Balcom, who is the director founder of the Center for Whale Research Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, the renowned authority, really, the most experienced expert on orcas, really, worldwide, but certainly the southern residents at that time, especially, if he could find a better home for Keiko because Mm -hmm. he was suffering. He was obviously dying, withering away in Mexico. So that was in, uh, I think, June of 93, and so for the next six months, Ken was almost totally focused on finding out what to do about Keiko. Can Mm -hmm. it be done? Can he go back in the ocean? What are the precedents? What do the scientists say? What do people think? So uh, then it just didn't work out for him to actually get the job. He was given the job Mm -hmm. by the managers at Reno Aventura in Mexico, but um, he was not accepted by, you could say, the scientific community to put a whale back in the ocean. Okay. Public public opinion eventually required that and a lot of very lucky breaks that got Keiko back in the ocean. But anyway, Mm -hmm. Ken was taken out of that role, but... Having all this research and having a far better candidate in Lolita, in Miami, uh, Ken focused his attention then on her. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
but he didn't really have the organization. He didn't have any any mm-hmm. uh, way to do it to conduct a campaign. Mm-hmm. So I started a nonprofit in 1995. But 1995, unbeknownst to us, was mm-hmm. the beginning of the decline in the southern residents. Uh, from 95 to about 2000, they lost about 20% of their population. Very drastic. All the red lights and alarm bells went off, and eventually that led to their listing as an endangered, uh, distinct population segment of a subspecies, mm-hmm. the way they defined it. But anyway, that the southern residents uh, were listed as endangered because they're in such deep trouble. Mm-hmm. And so our focus shifted by the end of the 90s, by 98, 99. It was, for one thing, clear that it was a matter of a decline in the salmon, the Chinook salmon that they Mm -hmm. depend on, and that we needed to focus on that. We had to take care of Toki's family and the southern residents that we had been studying daily for many years. So... uh, we sort of expanded our operation. Uh, I met Susan, my now wife, mm-hmm. who uh, is a fantastic organizer and, and uh, you know, sort of a, a, a uh, well organizer. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a, that's a big topic. She gets right. events and, and and the whole organization to run smoothly, um, and. We uh, progressed to, uh, after a few incarnations, founded Orca Network Mm -hmm. as another nonprofit in 2001. And uh, based on Whidbey, and it was just uh, me and her and a lot of, you know, some other board members, but Mm -hmm. a lot of volunteers, a lot of good help. But basically, we held down the fort. Um, until about, uh, I'd say, 2014, 2015, and you could call that a part of the blackfish effect, that mm-hmm. uh, people became interested in the living whales, the wild whales, mm-hmm. and wanted to know a whole lot more about them and wanted to help them. And, and so that generated a whole lot of interest. And so we expanded our programs, which were the sighting network, where uh, people basically line the shores when the whales come by, and we let them know that they're there and where to go to get the best views. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has, it's still expanding rapidly. Um, and our education programs, we have several events in the year. We have our Ways of Whales workshop all day in January. We have our Welcome the Whales, which is about the gray whales mm-hmm. that come in to the south end of Whidbey Island. Uh, right now, in fact, the first ones just showed up last week. Nice. Yeah. And uh, we have our stranding network. So we uh, pick up and investigate, examine um, any seals mainly or porpoises uh, or any marine mammals that wash up on a beach uh, and get a lot of very good information about the condition of the ocean ecosystem mm-hmm. that way. Um and uh, our just our overall programs. And in 2014, we opened the Whale Center, which is our, our storefront, our, our public interface mm-hmm. in Langley, uh, which has displays, exhibits about the orcas, about the gray whales, and just about, and humpbacks now because they've appeared. 
in mm-hmm. the past 10 years or so. Uh, so we uh, have all these displays and a gift shop, which is what supports the whale center. So uh, we now have employees. We've had to hire a total of about eight people. Wow, that's wow. awesome. Together. That's a really yeah, grown. So, so now we have staff meetings and board meetings, and, you know, it's a whole lot more, uh, you know, normal yeah. <laughs> as, a, you know, an organization with a lot of staff and board and a lot of operations going on all the time. Awesome. Um, are you guys still working to get Lolita out of um, the Miami Seaquarium? Well, we still are. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. Our role has really not changed uh, but it is limited because mm-hmm. we don't have the resources still. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have the kind of you know, administration capacity to raise the millions of dollars and to, to spend it, you mm-hmm. know, to contract and hire all the professionals and do all that organization. That will take, you know, several dedicated individuals to be able to, to pull all that off and a very big war chest, you know, to, to do it. But our role has been to uh, to lay the foundation, which is to make the, basically two points. One is easy, one is hard. The easy part is to make the case that she needs to come home, mm-hmm. that she def- she deserves it. She's you know she's suffering there. She should be with her family. That defies everything we know about orcas to mm-hmm. keep her all alone in that tiny, tiny tank is horrible, and Mm -hmm. once you see it, you don't unsee it. It's obvious she needs to come home. Mm -hmm. The second problem, and that is against the headwinds of the industry and a lot of the scientific consensus, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, those who are not as immersed in the topic as we are, that it would somehow harm her, that she might not survive the trip that if she is at all ill or or she's just too old or, you know, that that it just wouldn't be safe. It just doesn't feel like a good idea. And that, of course, is pounded every time by the industry in their, their media. That's, that's their only communication with us is what they tell the media, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the challenge is to make the case that it really doesn't pose a risk, any significant risk. I mean, you can never say no risk, but but in terms of a significant risk, there is no history, there is no reason to believe that there's any stage of that process that would pose any big risk to her. She would swim into a comfy sling and be transported in a, you know, a big box, you know, a half full of water, ice water, and taken home. It's a, you know, it's a proven practice. Mm-hmm. I mean, SeaWorld has moved hundreds of whales. That's true, yeah. And so, you know, it's, it, there's no mystery about how to do it. And then just lower her slowly in her native waters, in a sea pen, so she, you know, wouldn't wander off. You know, she may be disoriented and need, you know, special care, and she should get it the entire way. And when she is in her home waters, mm-hmm. but she can get the same care, better care than she is getting now, mm-hmm. and be fed, and you know, get medical help and everything else. So there's no reason to think that there would be any risk, you know, right. but we have to make that case over and over. 
Right. So essentially right now it's just kind of like a matter of getting the money to do it is what it sounds like. And then getting the people on board. Yeah, getting the people on board, I think, is sort of the other way around. Because if you get the people on board, it's not that hard to raise the money. That's true. Uh, But they've been completely behind fortress walls. The owners, and now that ownership has just changed in the last six, well, almost a year now, to a uh, holding company based in Sweden, Uh, that is now privately held. Uh, A couple of, you know, wealthy families own this company that owns the company that owns the company that owns this aquarium. So, you know, they're the ultimate owners. Um, And uh, it's really hard to even know how to communicate with them. And, of course, they're not going to say yes until they decide, you know, financially that they have to. And I think that time is coming. I mean, the public opinion has shifted. Mm-hmm. I think in our, you know, our first challenge, which was to make the case that captivity is bad for mm-hmm. whales and dolphins, um, that has definitely succeeded. I mean, by virtue of you know hundreds of people and organizations and some very good documentary movies, and uh, that case has been made. And, you know, the the public opinion worldwide is turning against that practice. I do believe it. Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, Do you know if she's still reproductive or not? uh, She is probably menopausal. She's post-reproductive. That ends at about age 40 for orcas. So uh, she's about 50. I mean, she's over 50. She's 53 or 4 now. So she's probably past that. Okay. And do you know if she had any kids? Uh, no, I'm okay. quite sure she hasn't. Um, you know, yeah, there's there's no record of that. Okay, I was just curious about that. Um, you know, one thing that doesn't really make sense to me is, given that she's an endangered species, I was kind of under the understanding that, like, in order for endangered species to be held captive, it needed to be for some kind of conservation purpose. Um, do you know if that's the case? Um, there, well, of course, when she was captured, there were no laws at all. That was before mm-hmm. the Marine Mammal Protection Act, so she would be, you know, grandfathered in anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, there, you can't capture in the U.S. now, uh, in any case, and uh, it, the laws are tightening up all mm-hmm. the time. Uh, but yeah, you, you, you can't. Yeah, well, the, there is, you know, you can, by the laws that she is held by, mm-hmm. you're allowed to keep her captive for public display. But mm-hmm. that means you have to keep the ticket office open. You have to keep her okay. on display uh, to fulfill that law. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she's they're not really allowed to turn people away, although they do. I've been turned away at the gate. They tell me I can't come in because I'm a known activist, they say. So, uh, you know, that is actually a violation of the law. If I wanted to make a big case, I probably could. But Right. uh, Yeah, but that's that's the only law that applies that I know of. Okay, that makes sense. Um, So you guys are still kind of just trying to work, and we just basically need more people on board, essentially, is how we get her out. (laughs) 
Well, yeah. I mean, it really does pivot around public opinion. It's, okay. it's you know, what does the public think? And, and even now in Russia, as we just found out, you know, a few months ago when, when uh, the, the local authorities blocked the capture of 10 orcas and what was it, 98 belugas or something. Wow. Um, that were held in this sort of, you know, warehouse uh, jail cells. Mm-hmm. Um, whale jail, I guess they call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, those were all released. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's still a question of whether that's a permanent ban on further captures. But that rule that you said does it is in effect in Russia, that they have to be for scientific purposes. Mm-hmm. And clearly, the captures are all for sale for circuses. So. Right. Uh, I think that ends those captures in Russia. You know, we, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll know soon. But that means that puts a big halt on the industry in China. In China, you know, the the uh, uh, party government has created this industry. They've just sort of decided on a you know a decision by mm-hmm. the Politburo, I guess it is, to. Uh, start an industry to like out SeaWorld, SeaWorld and have Mm -hmm. all these marine parks full of orcas and they're, you know, getting them all from Russia. And now Russia has shut the door on that. So I think people are just waking up around the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's, it's really put a halt to it, I believe. Yeah, I would agree. I definitely see like Asia kind of being a little bit of an issue still, but I would say for the most part, people are getting on board and most people that I talk to are not interested in going to SeaWorld or, you know, any of those other places. So that's definitely positive. Um, mm-hmm. So what do you think is like the best thing that we as individuals can do to help Lolita or the Southern residents in general? Well, for Lolita, spread the word. Mm-hmm. You know, just let it be known that it's a terrible thing what they're doing to her and she should be home with her family. And now that we know about Orca's you know, let's apply what we know and, and help her out. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as the Southern residents, now that's a, a really... It's a big one. <laughs> not to crack because uh, they need more food. Mm-hmm. And there is so much confusion. Um, and it's coming from official quarters in a lot of ways. The agencies, the federal agencies um, are trying to you know, confuse people and, and uh, you know, uh, make people think it's other issues. Mm-hmm. There's a sort of a, a three-legged stool uh, theory that's going around that it's, you know, the, the boat disturbance, it's the toxicity, and it's the lack of prey, mm-hmm. as if they're all equal. But, in fact, those other issues are not really uh, important if they have enough to eat. Okay. Uh, they can, you know, they, they they don't metabolize the toxins in their blubber if their bellies are full. If they've got a lot of food, they don't need that energy, so the toxins stay lodged and out of circulation and don't do them any harm. And we have a perfect laboratory right here with the, the transient big killer whales, the mammal eaters, mm-hmm. who are doing incredibly well. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're multiplying at about 4% a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're seeing them more and more and more every year and fewer residents. 
and they're in the same waters. They have the same boat pressures or you know boat viewing you know experience, um, and uh, they are actually higher in their toxic load because they eat higher on the food chain. So they're eating seals that already have a bigger load. So okay, um, and they're doing great. What they have is food. They have mm-hmm. a whole lot more food, and the southern residents do not. So it just boils right down to they don't have enough of the food that they have eaten for thousands of years here, which are Chinook salmon. So we need more Chinook. And we know how to get those Chinook, or at least we know right. you know, some very big, low-hanging fruit, and those are in the form of four dams on the Snake River that mm-hmm. really need to be removed. Absolutely. I know that, um, you know, they're doing the march for the dams right now from Portland to the Ice Harbor Lock and Dam, which I think is really positive and is going to kind of create that movement. Um, You know, I think all of us that are passionate about this, you know, we we send our letters and we call Jay Ensley and, you know, we do what we can. Um, What do you think it's going to take to get those dams down? Well, Apparently, first, you have to have public opinion once Mm -hmm. again, just like with the captivity issue, Mm -hmm. once the public demands it. Mm -hmm. But it's got to be overwhelming because there is so much, you know, official federal agency and political opposition to that right now. Uh, But that public opinion is really building. But then that has to translate into uh, elected officials, governors. Our own governor in Washington, the governor of of Oregon, has just come through in the last month and wrote a letter to our governor in Washington saying uh, we have to bring those dams down. Mm -hmm. We've got to do it right. We've got to do it carefully. We've got to keep in mind the needs of the region, the farmers, you know, everyone who depends on those services from those dams. We have to, you know, have plans and do it carefully. But we got to all get on board. What right. she's saying is, let's just resolve now. Those dams are going to come down. Let's make the plans. Right. And that's what we need. Uh, Representative Simpson in Idaho has said essentially the same thing. It's very risky for mm-hmm. any politician right now. I understand that because there's a sort of a you know, guaranteed immediate backlash to them when they say something like that. Mm-hmm. So, but the more they say it, the more they back each other up. Right. And the more, you know, they can support each other. And now we have a, a core. We just have, you know, those few, mm-hmm. basically Simpson and uh, Kate Brown in Oregon, Governor Brown, mm-hmm. to say that they do need to come down. Mm-hmm. Um, if Governor Inslee would just tip that way and come out, you know, very clear, saying, yes, we do need to. Let's start planning on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that would that would tip the scales. But it really, it is, you know, a, a, by law, it is up to the Army Corps of Engineers, to the commander. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a military structure, and there is a commander. And he could tomorrow write what's called a record of decision to render the dams inoperative because they don't fulfill their uh, their you know their what, what they were built for, mm-hmm. um, and and they're losing money 
I mean, they are huge money losers, hundreds of millions. It's uncounted because those accounts are hidden. They're not public. So you can't really see how much federal money, ratepayer money is pouring into keeping those dams operating. But it's on the order of, you know, hundreds of millions per year overall. And so it would just be prudent. It would, you know, free up resources for the Army Corps to do other other flood control and, you know, real operations that they need to do. Um, so it would make sense. But they're kind of hooked on that money. Mm-hmm. They kind of like having that, you know, continual federal input and their bureaucracies and all their contracts and all their connections with the community. Um, And they subsidize the farming uh, communities in terms of their barging of their wheat down, down the Snake River and the irrigation at the low end of the Snake River. Um, but you know those are subsidies. Yeah, those are that's you know let's get back to a little bit of free enterprise, um, and you know and do what whatever can be done. Sure, I mean I'm not against you know federal support for farmers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they should be, but not at the cost of the best and biggest salmon in the world. Right in the high altitude wilderness of Idaho which is also costing the lives of southern resident orcas. Right. So, you know, the, at, with, with that ratio, no, let's let's take care of the farmers and the salmon and the orcas. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in my personal, like, research, just on my own, I found that most of the economic valuations, except for the one conducted by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, show that it economically makes the most sense to take them down and those who would suffer, we can absolutely make it right for them. Right. So it really can be done. I mean, it's just, it's, there's just a lot of uh, misinformation. There's been a campaign to justify the dams for 50 years, really since before they were built, you know, to get them built, there were these promises of, you know, wealth and, and uh, everyone will, will benefit so much by these dams. And by the way, they won't hurt the salmon. We'll build ladders or, the, you know, we'll right. figure out ways. But those don't work for the smolts, mainly the juveniles coming downstream. Mm-hmm. They get trapped in those lakes and don't survive. They don't get over the dams. Absolutely. Yeah, um, I actually went down to the lower granite um, dam and saw the salmon, um, like ladders and things like that. And it looked, it just, like, just from a visual perspective, it was not, like, it didn't look effective. And, like, there were not a ton of salmon running through there at the time that I was there. Um, But when I had asked people that were there, you know, they kind of had this thing of, oh, it's really good for the salmon. Um, But I agree with you. I think there's a lot of misinformation. Where do you recommend that people go to find the most accurate information? Well... Um, there really aren't official sources for that. Okay. You know, we, we should have good government sources for official information. Um, the uh, Fisheries Management Council is a good place. Uh, there's something uh, at the uh, University of Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is that? Um, uh, well, there is anyway a, a fish study program there that gives pretty good information that shows, for instance, that the the smolt to adult return rate, Mm -hmm. which is the key rate, you need Mm -hmm. the adults to get back and spawn, 
And if it's below 4%, Mm -hmm. they're diminishing. And it's below 1%. I mean, it's it's just very, very low. So there are numbers for that. Um, I have a pretty good uh, set of documents at at our website, Mm orcanetwork.org. It's under orcas and then Snake River Dam Removal. Mm -hmm. And there's also another website called damsense.org that has a pretty good bibliography of uh, a lot of documents. Awesome. Well, I will definitely, like, I'm always encouraging people to look for the facts because it's so easy for things to get misconstrued. I do have a question about a fact right now. Um, So there's a lot of talk of there being potentially 72 Southern residents left. Is that the official count as of now? Yes, it is. It is? Okay. Right. Yeah, and that's pretty recent, and so it's probably very accurate. Okay, because um, I've been checking the Center for Whale Research's website, and I just didn't see anything yet. Maybe they updated it, but okay, good to know. We are officially at 72, just more motivation for us to keep, you know, charging on. Um, what the Center th- for Whale Research makes their uh, count to NOAA, their report to NOAA in okay. uh, on July 1st and January 1st. Okay. So that's when they'll give When they'll that put number. that out. Excellent. Um, and so basically in order for the animal to be determined as dead, is it like a time period in which you don't see it or a number of sightings? Yeah, it's a little bit of a judgment call. Okay. But when you're familiar with them and you know, for instance, L41 Mega who mm-hmm. went missing... Uh, yeah, I think it was January, early January mm-hmm. that uh, people knew him. You right. know, they knew who he'd be with. He'd be with his mom. He'd right. be with his family. He was always right there. Mm-hmm. And with him missing, uh, you know, they they were tentative at first. You know, mm-hmm. justifiably. You know, let's not call it immediately. But after a couple of reports of the family without him. He's gone. Absolutely. You just know that. Okay. That makes sense. Um, And then the one final question I have, what we always ask people is, um, you know, do you have any particularly impactful um, memories with the residents or what do you think that we can learn from them? Oh, goodness. (laughs) Uh, You have to really take it all in because... Mm -hmm. It's both the sort of, you know, immediate observations of, you know, being with them, experience. I mean, it's interactional. They'll Mm -hmm. take a look at you. You know, they're aware of you, too. (laughs) Um, And that is totally intriguing. People Mm -hmm. have tried to describe that, you know, eye-to-eye experience so much and and just being in their presence and and, Mm -hmm. and being able to just sort of appreciate their their mastery, their their absolute, you know, control Mm -hmm. of, of their world. Uh, but then when you also look at their, you know, the evolutionary history, that they've been without fear. They've been the top predator mm-hmm. for like 10 million years since their very beginnings as the, mm-hmm. the largest of the dolphins and the largest brained, that they have had no predators at all. I mean, they can, you know, they're predators to every other animal in the ocean if they want to be, but nothing can touch an orca. They're mm-hmm. not only too big and have sharp teeth, but they've got each other's backs. They're so social and cooperative. They're always aware of, mm-hmm. of their surroundings and communicating that. So they are just without fear. And so they've had all these millions of years 
to develop their way of life, of mm-hmm. how to live on this planet. They still have to live within the parameters of the Earth, you know, of, mm-hmm. of the prey base and, and the geography and, you know, the planet. But they've learned how to do that, mm-hmm. and they've learned that very, very well. Uh, there, there's really very few of them. There aren't that many orcas in the world when you compare with other, you know, like sperm whales, twice the size. There's uh, 100 or 200,000 of them. But when you add up all of the orca communities around the world, there isn't any good official consensus on this number either of the total world population of orcas. Mm-hmm. But there aren't that many. Yeah. There's probably 30,000, 40,000 total. Wow. And uh, and yet, you know, they are the top predator, and they can go anywhere in any ocean. You know, mm-hmm. warm, cold, shallow, deep, doesn't matter. They'll adapt. But uh, they keep their numbers low. They, they share the resources. Mm-hmm. They apportion the resources, just like what we have right here. It's a perfect laboratory with residents and transients having different diets completely. Mm-hmm. They do not compete. They don't mm-hmm. get in each other's way. So they, you know, they very seldom have any interaction. Uh, you know, it's they they don't mingle. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, you know, they, they they manage that, and that's been worked out. Who knows how many thousands or millions of years ago? Right. So, you know, I think we can learn from that. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, I definitely appreciate you taking the time to let me interview you. Do you have any final thoughts or things that you want to share with people? No, I don't think so. I think mm-hmm. we've covered it pretty well. I appreciate the yeah. Uh, opportunity. Yeah, awesome. Um, I will...